0: Welcome back to the podcast. In this season, we are doing a bit of an exploration of the idea of a well being economy. What would it look like to create an economy that actually serves people and planet? And one of the big components of this is well, what would it look like to have a well being approach to government? And what does that actually mean? So, our next guest is a bit of a global expert in this and in what countries all around the world. Are starting to do. Her name is Dr. Cressida Gork Roger. She is a senior policy advisor in well being for the Center for Policy Development here in Australia. Center for Policy Development is a leading independent policy institute, and they say their model is threefold to create, connect, and convince. So they are pragmatic, but they're also about really bringing those big ideas you know, into government, into the public to try to to spread that influence. And they've got one right now that they're really excited about, and it is inspired a lot by the small but very mighty country of Wales. So we talk about that in this conversation. Um, Cressida's background, though, is really fascinating. It's not what you would potentially expect. She's actually um, has a PhD in philosophy and kind of the philosophy of psychology. She's taught ethics at Oxford and there's this famous degree that she was working at you know teaching on at Oxford um, called philosophy politics and economics and she reckons more than half the prime ministers of England did PPE at Oxford so here she is you know teaching the kind of upcoming leaders and you know the Oxford model it's a bit like Hogwarts (laughs) You sort of you learn in these houses and she said her house was a lot like Hufflepuff her college (laughs) so you're there in your little college having these very small um, kind of one-on-one or one-on-two lectures and discussions, and they'd be talking to her about economics and you know, questioning it from a kind of ethical place of, well, why do we do what we do? Why do we value this? Is it GDP that matters? Is it the quality of the growth? Is it the quality? You know, and she started to get really intrigued by economics and almost a bit jealous of her students and started to go off and do these deeper dives into things like behavioral economics and the psychology of all of it. And, became basically a specialist in this area, came back to Australia um, and found herself in Melbourne in lockdown with three small children and started writing um, what she calls revenge parenting genre books on the side. It's just a little bit of therapy. So it's like stories of children that do naughty things. and. <laughs> And, you know, kind of like modern day fairy tales and have to reap the consequences. But it's all, you know, met lovingly as kind of a cautionary tale. I think it sounds fantastic. So I'm going to include a link to pre-order that in your show notes. But basically, this is a wonderful conversation with someone who is so nuanced and so bright. She doesn't come at us offering, you know a bunch of um, glib answers she's really thinking about well-being and what it could look like to take a far more ambitious approach here in australia than perhaps any of us think possible here's my conversation with cressida sitting here looking at the wonderful Cressida. Cressida, welcome to the Remakers podcast. It's such a delight to have you.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me, Lily.
0: And look, I have given our audience a little bit of an intro to you and to the kind of work that you do, but I'm really curious. So you're a senior policy advisor who specializes in well-being and you're a bit of a global expert on this theme. What does well-being actually mean to you in the work that you do? Because I think it's a term that feels a bit fuzzy and people don't know, is it wealth? Is it health? Is it happiness?
1: What is yeah, yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think, you know, to some people working in this, this space, uh, being is just about subjective happiness. So how am I feeling right now? Maybe what's my level of life satisfaction? Um, but actually the kinds of work that I think is being done Globally, looking at how to build well-being into, say, policy decision-making has a much more kind of complex idea of well-being. So, one of the kind of foundations for this idea comes from Amartya Sen's. Uh, so he was a economist and philosopher. Amartya Sen's capability approach. So he says basically, uh, to have well-being is to have a the cap- the capability the capacity to live a life that you have reason to value and so what does it mean to have that capacity or capability well there are going to be external features for example that make it hard to live a healthy life so if you've got high levels of air pollution or you are experiencing poverty then it's going to be really hard to live a healthy life and obviously not being healthy uh can make it harder to get and you know makes it harder to pursue the things that you value in your life um There are also things, capabilities that come from within you, but can be promoted through external things. So, for example, having uh, high levels of education uh, is going to allow you both to achieve jobs that you might find meaningful, um, but also participate in society in different ways that might be really meaningful to you. Um, Having strong social connections are going to be really important for things like health outcomes, uh, things like you know, overall happiness and mental health outcomes, things like educational outcomes, employment outcomes. Um, So the way in which well-being is understood generally in these kinds of movements is you think of what are the things that together essentially make make a good quality of life or make life worth living for us, but also for future generations. And so This is really important because well-being approaches typically have really key environmental values. And we know that the environment is important for us immediately in terms of health, short-term and long-term health outcomes, in terms of mental health outcomes. But we also know that preserving the environment is really important for allowing future generations to be able to have high levels of well-being and the capacity to kind of pursue meaningful lives. Um, and you know, for many also the importance of preserving the environment sustainability is that it's a value in and of its own sake. So it's a value for non-human animals. It's a value because this is actually part of what's important about, you know, the human experience is, you know, living with the world rather than kind of dominating over the world.
0: So, okay. So things like education, strong social connections, lack of impediments to, you know, a good life such as, you know being in poverty or experiencing high levels of pollution, having a healthy natural world. All of this sounds really good. And there could be people listening or indeed policy people or government people thinking, but we, we already take care of that stuff. Or we at least try to, you know, we have a department of health, we have a department of environment, we have education, we fund all of these things. How is a well-being lens? How does that change the way that government might make decisions or allocate money, or does it risk becoming just a bit of a well-being washing kind of a box ticking exercise?
1: Yeah, so I think there might be a couple of questions there, you know how does it do it effectively, and then how is it kind of different from business as usual? So there are uh, some problems with the way in which we do businesses as usual, as usual in government and the public service which end up getting in the way of us trying to achieve uh, these well-being outcomes. Um, some of them uh, come from uh, the kind of political and sort of media over-reliance on the idea of growth and GDP being, this is what's really important. This is what's going to achieve this good quality of life. You know, growth isn't an end in itself. If anything, it would be a means to an end. Um, but we typically do treat it as an end in itself. So we say things like, look, a good reason for having a healthy, well-educated population is that that will contribute to productivity and then GDP will go up. And you think, no, surely having a healthy and well-educated population, that's the good thing that we wanted, not <laughs> having a high GDP, Yeah, not, not the other way around. Um, so there are kind of those, those issues with business as usual and that typically comes out in kind of the political sphere and in manifestos. Mm -hmm. In governments, you know, as you say, it's not like the health department is thinking about GDP. Even within the Treasury, uh, most of the money that's being allocated by the Treasury or kind of carved up by the Treasury is for things like social services. You know, they're not thinking about increasing growth. They're thinking about ways in which they can kind of fiscally responsibly uh, care for the population. But and you know, provide public goods. Um, but there are these barriers that uh come in most political systems around the world to achieving this effectively. And uh I'll talk through those in a minute, but I think well-being approaches to government really focus on how do we change the system so that those barriers, which are often barriers partly in the in the culture, in the way of thinking. Can be removed so that we actually make better, not just policy decisions, but a whole range of decisions. So, you know, government has power over, you know, taxes and spending, but it also has power over legislation. It also has power over procurement. It also has power over all of the government employees um, and, you know, their working conditions and all of these different kinds of things. So, you know, some of the key guiding principles, you know, the first one is to be purpose driven. So actually having a a goal or typically you know a set of goals that we're trying to achieve and that might sound really weird because you think like obviously government is trying to achieve the well-being of people but you know we know from you know the ted review from numerous kind of reports including um work that Australia Remain has done on the public service that what people within the public service really want and need is uh, to have clear values, purpose-driving values that can align their work and actually um, help them in decision-making because they can say, okay, this is actually endpoint. This is the kind of thing that we're working to um, achieve across all of our work rather than thinking of it you know, being siloed. Um, the Welsh model, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit, does really, really well in outlining uh, their goals and specifically making them goals that government departments and public bodies have to work towards in everything that they do. So when I talk about goals, things like having a healthier Wales, a more prosperous Wales, a Wales of cohesive communities, you know, those kinds of things, thinking about what are those different aspects that you need to have the capacity to live your meaningful life or to have high quality of life. Um, Another feature is uh, thinking about the holistic nature of well-being. So, you know, you might think, okay, we've got this government department and it works on health, right? So why is it, why why should they be doing anything differently? Why should anyone else care about health? We've already got this covered. Well, you know, people in government are not unaware of the fact that having this really siloed nature of government does not achieve the best outcomes, so if you want to improve health outcomes, one of the things you could do, for example, is reduce air pollution around schools. The health department doesn't have the ability to uh, mandate different transport uh, policies or, you know, even things like policies on importing of high-polluting cars, right? Breaking down the barriers between those silos with departments and the jurisdictions as well in Australia, which is a big problem that is really, really tricky, but um, it's something that's easier at least to conceive of why you need it and how you can kind of focus your attentions if you've got this purpose-driven approach. If you're thinking, all right, what is it that we actually want to achieve? Well, there are a whole bunch of things that make up a good life. And if any of those things are missing, then it's going to have the, all of these follow-on impacts, right? So how can we work together together? To make sure that everything that we do actually contributes to all of these different um, areas. Another feature is prevention. So rather than saying, okay, you know, we've got this problem, we've got huge levels of acute need, cost is going up trying to treat them. You know, you might have high levels of, uh, you know, crime or violence in a particular area, or high levels of poor health outcomes how do we approach that well we can say okay well we need to immediately do something in the short term let's let's uh, increase police capacity let's increase police numbers on the streets let's increase the amount of time that people will spend in jail for example for particular crimes that might show small effects in the short term but it's actually not turning off the tap it's not saying let's look upstream and try to prevent this crime from happening in the first place so there's this is fantastic example from Uh, Scotland from Glasgow uh, where and it kind of shows the well-being approach in action so it's holistic it's also preventative so uh, in Glasgow there's uh, been historically very high violence levels you know high levels of poverty and inequality and they had really serious problems with knife crime amongst the young male population for a long period of time uh, which kind of culminated in a UN report Listing Glasgow as the most dangerous uh, place in uh, amongst developed countries um, in the world, tied into, of course, uh, intergenerational poverty, uh, terribly low life expectancy in a range of areas. Uh, you know, really concentrated areas of you know violence, uh, lack of access to jobs, and the way in which they've been trying to teach it or treat it previously was saying, it's a law and order problem. We've just got to get more police. We've just got to stop these young men from you know, going out with knives and uh, getting involved in this violence. And they had this real turning point where they brought in an approach, which was to see knife crime as a public health problem, right. rather than as a law and order problem. And as a public health problem, it meant you had, you know, police, the police working with social services, working with community centres, working with health services, they had targeted programs to help these young men who were most likely to be both the perpetrators and victims of knife crime, um, so that they were able to do things like get training and support to go into uh, targeted work, housing. They had uh, additional, um, you know, sports and recreation facilities and. With this approach, it was a preventative approach, and it was also a long-term approach. They knew they weren't going to see the results immediately, but over the first decade, there was an incredible drop in knife crime in Glasgow, I and mean, it's been it's been unbelievably successful. So, more than a fifty percent decrease in incidents of knife crime and violent crimes, uh, incredible drop in hospital admissions. Um, and you also get all of these other fo- you know positive follow-on outcomes because you can break some of those cycles of uh, intergenerational unemployment. Uh, you can make communities better places for everyone to live, which is obviously going to have you know economic health social benefits um And you know it's an expensive very, very involved program. But if you take the preventative approach then and you understand that it's for the long term, then you get much better, well being outcomes, but you also end up saving a lot of money, which so it's actually in some senses a well being approach to government isn't just not fluffy, but it's actually very uh, targeted, fiscally responsible, kind of economically responsible government management, where once you know what it is that you want to achieve it can provide you with some of the kind of guidelines and targets that allow you to actually achieve that.
0: Two things struck me in what you just said about, you know, the that one instead of spending a lot of money building new prisons we're spending money building better communities that we can all enjoy mm. and that are just nicer places for everyone to live. And two, that it was a 10 year return on investment when they started to see the, you know, the numbers really go down and what government has the courage to say okay, I know we're up for re-election in, you know, three years, but we're going to we're gonna put a plan into place here for the next decade and beyond. And we're going to watch the fruits of that labor um, come to life. Like that's quite courageous.
1: Yeah, it really is. And I think it's, you know, some of that's going to be trial and error because there is also, there are risks associated. It could be that uh, you don't achieve what you hope to achieve. Uh, and it also could be that you will have to potentially redirect some funding from acute service responses, which means that people are going to feel left out uh, or people are going to feel overlooked. And so politically, it's tricky on many levels. So it's tricky because the outcomes that you see are not going to happen within the election cycle that you make the promise in. Um, And we see this in New Zealand. So New Zealand has had uh, long-term wellbeing goals, uh, where some of the criticism that the Ardern government uh received in relation to those was that you weren't really seeing seeing the dial changing, even though there were budget priorities. So goals on reducing child poverty, for example. And we're actually seeing very, very small shifts now, which is still, you know, if you think about the number of people whose lives are affected by even a small shift and the positive follow-on effects, you know, this is a great thing, but politically that's that's quite tricky. there are kind of easier entry points so there are programs that are very very cheap or even free that are preventative that are you know holistic that are well-being focused so um, in Wales for example they had a program where they got young people who were particularly at high risk of truancy at school to go um, regularly to visit an aged care home in the area and engage with the wow. older people there. Um, and, you know, it didn't cost any money to do this. And then you ended up seeing actually in quite a short period of time these amazing results. So these children were their truancy and um, uh kind of reports for behavioral issues went down in the kids who were participating in this. So it had a really positive impact on them. Uh, we also saw. Certain positive increases for the residents, of ag- aged care homes. So it was a 50% reduction in use of antipsychotics uh, within um, aged care residents. Um, Australia, I know there's a similar one in Seymour, in um uh where, you know, young people who are from low socioeconomic backgrounds or challenging backgrounds are being paired up with aged care homes. And one of the things that they've seen. Uh, kind of anecdotally is, you know, a number of these young men who are maybe at higher risk of being unemployed later on want to go and work in the aged care sector after having participated in this program. So you get these easy wins, you get these things where they're no brainers, but you need systems that that foster that, that share that knowledge, that encourage that kind of innovation and experimentation. Um, But also we have some uh, systems or some kind of tools that are beginning to feed back future savings from these preventative approaches, um, though I don't think enough. So uh, in Victoria, the Victorian treasury has this fund called the Early Intervention Investment Fund. Uh, Early Intervention Investment Fund is an extra pot of money. So it's not tied to different departments' budgets. And it's a pot of money which any department can apply to. You can apply collaboratively. And the idea is it's only for policy initiatives and programs which take a preventative or early intervention lens such that uh, you will see a reduction in the need for future costs. So, you know, you might say, okay, look, if we get... Uh, this amount of money to have this social intervention scheme, you're going to see a reduction in uh, need for prison places and, you know, policing or something. So those costs are going to reduce uh, in the long term. Um, And so this fund says, okay, give us your policy proposals and then all you have to do is fill out this extra spreadsheet. So on one side you say what are the positive outcomes that are going to happen within the next, I think, four to ten years, something like that. And then on the other side, you say, and what are the savings that we are going to get from those positive outcomes? And the Treasury has run this very, very well. So they work incredibly closely with these departments to fill in that second bit. Forecasting savings based on prevention is really, really difficult. But what the Treasury found was they've got to do it anyway because they've got to assess whether or not the numbers that are being presented are correct. So if they're going to do it anyway, maybe they can kind of do it for you, right? So they want to build up the capacity in these departments to be able to do it themselves to a certain extent. So the savings then get banked back into that fund. So each year that fund grows um, off the back of the um, projected savings that come from the programs uh, that it's sponsoring Um, and it's it's a very, very clever way yeah, that's cool. of addressing this. And I think that the there's a kind of untapped political value in increasing our capacity and models to work out how much we'd actually save. And maybe then, you know, when you do the budget, you couldn't just say, oh, well, this service costs us this amount of money. You might say, this service costs this amount of money right now. But actually, in the long term, it's going to save this amount of money.
0: And not only that, but we have all of the well-being dividends. We have the better society. We have the moral reason to be doing better if we can. Yeah, that's really clever. So it's Treasury working with these different departments to help them try to forecast what they're going to save. And then that grows the pile of money for everybody. And I imagine it's quite a coup internally, right? Like To be able to say to your team or your boss or the other, like, look, look what we did. You know, that's yeah, that's awesome. So we've got purpose-driven, holistic, preventative. Are there any other key wellbeing lenses, things that factor into that?
1: Yeah. So there's long-term as well. So, you know, thinking about things that are not just uh, going to kind of have long-term effects, but sustainable long-term effects. And and then the last one, I think, uh, is future-focused. So thinking not just long term in terms of you know how long is this program going to run when are we going to see the results, but how do we make sure that uh, you know future generations aren't going to be um, kind of severely inhibited in their ability to meet their needs? I mean, it's the Bruntland de- definition of you know sustainable development, right? That you know we should meet our needs, uh, but it shouldn't come at the expense of future generations to meet their needs. It's clever in the sense that futures thinking begins to you know so if you look at a person not just at one point in time but you know what are their needs going to be across their whole lifespan. If we want children right now to have a really good opportunity throughout the rest of their lives, one of the things we're going to have to think about, for example, is we've got an aging population. So what is it going to look like for them when they get old and they, you know, need care uh, or they're no longer participating in the workforce, right? This is stuff we should probably be thinking about right now because we've got to think about, you know, what kind of workforce would we need? What kinds of things can we put in place now so that when people get older, they have, you know, fewer chronic health problems that might make it harder for them to stay at home if they want to? You see a lot of long-term and potential future thinking in business. Business are actually really good at forecasting and they're not thinking in one or two-year cycles. That would be a terrible business plan. You know, they're they're thinking what, you know, what's the landscape going to look like? What are the opportunities? Uh, What are the potential risks going on, you know, for a decade or more? Um, And part of this, and this is why I think it's just about doing government well, I don't think anyone in government actually hates well-being i think you know the in government and in political parties what people want is a system or you know practices that actually bring about the greatest amount of well-being and if you actually ask people what's important to their well-being the things that we say are very very similar so i think actually we've got very similar concepts it's just that we disagree about how to get there and part of this well-being government approach is saying Actually, you know, this is a much better way of getting there because we know where it is that we want to go. And once we've agreed on that, let's think about what's getting in the way and you know how can we achieve that in a broad, sustainable, long-term way.
0: I just wanted to say that if this conversation has got you thinking, well, we would really like to hear from you. So you can get in touch with us directly via email podcast at org. You can also give us a call and the details for that are in your show notes. I wanted to give a huge shout out to everyone who takes a minute to spread the word about this podcast or to write a review. It means the world to us. We are a small, not-for-profit, independent team building a community of people who want a kinder, smarter, more hopeful, and solutions-focused politics. So if that sounds like your jam, please go to the website AustraliaRemade.org and sign up to get updates and stay in the loop and check us out. Thanks. Back to the show. goes to this idea that um and it's a point that you've made about the fact that that this isn't a super political or politicized process right like this isn't a left versus right thing um we had a former treasurer who kind of made fun of the idea of a well-being budget as being mala beads and incense but actually like half the countries in the oecd have some kind of well-being framework many of them are conservative government run you know it's not it doesn't have to be some radically political idea. It's actually this kind of interesting common ground that we can build of like, well, what matters to us? What do we actually want? What are our goals? Um, So what has been most inspiring to you as you've been studying other countries and kind of, you know, how they, some of the things that they've been able to achieve, because I think for a lot of us there might still be an element of um, not even necessarily hardcore skepticism, but just, not sure, you know, where could this actually go, you know, and how does it, how does it really um, change things for people on the ground? What are people really being able to achieve with this that would inspire Australia to try to follow in
1: a similar path? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think that's, it's a complicated question in the sense that when I first started doing this work, you know, the first piece of work that I was working on is this big project called Redefining Progress, where we were essentially doing a global scan of practice. At first it was going to be a global scan of best practice. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> that got wound back to a global scan of practice. Um, and, you know, it was a bit of a baptism by fire, right? So we had a huge amount of stuff that we had to get through. And, you know, when I started my job, I had an interest in this stuff and some background in some Areas. So I was a philosopher working in ethics. Um, I'd also done kind of social research with government departments, so I knew some of the skills, but you know, I certainly wasn't an expert on well-being government approaches, and I don't think that there were very many um around. And so looking at all of these other countries, there were so many opportunities where you think that sounds like a great idea. I'm sure that's going to make a big difference, and then Sometimes you'd read it in reports, but often you get it from actually talking to people on the ground, not a lot of change. So you did Mm. get this well-being washing Mm. um, and I think you particularly get that risk when there's exclusive focus on measurement, um, which I can kind of go into more detail, but a lot of countries start just with measurement and actually... Uh, that doesn't necessarily lead to any change in action. And there are reasons why it might not really be able to lead to that much change in action as well. Um, So government says we're
0: not just going to measure GDP, we're going to decide five other things or whatever the number is that we're going to measure and that's going to be included in how we, but it doesn't actually change or drive a different set of priorities or way of working.
1: No, typically not. And, I mean, there are countries that have tried to build uh, build that into, uh, for example, you know, reporting or priority setting. But typically, what happens with measurement is a lot of countries have this measurement dashboard. So the idea is that you look at, you know, what are the different domains that are important for well-being? You know, health, education, community connectedness, environment, prosperity, equality, culture. Um, you know, there might be. Kind of a bunch of others, work-life balance uh, is relatively common. And then you say, okay, well, we're going to have a look at some indicators that tell us on how tell us how we're doing on these things. And when I first looked at, you know well-being measurement in these terms, I didn't really understand what an indicator was. But an indicator is just that that little piece of information where it doesn't actually say, here are the health outcomes of all Australians <laughs> right now. <laughs> I was like, how do you get that much detail? They're not very detailed. So, um, Australia had its own kind of wellbeing measurement dashboard um, in the early 2000s called Measures of Australia's Progress, that was run by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And that ran for over a decade. And their indicators, just to give you an example. So, you know, their headline indicator for health was life expectancy. Hmm. So, so, so that's it. I mean, they had, you know, a couple of other indicators below it, so behavioural indicators, you know, smoking rates and obesity rates. Um, but, you know, they didn't have all of the information that you'd need to get, you know, a really great and deep understanding of what health is looking like in Australia. They had a couple of pieces of information that were seen as, you know, indicative of health outcomes uh, that would be easy to read and understand for the general population um and you know for decision makers how do you how do you work with that so how do you say okay life expectancy because these indicators they move very very slowly um you know even if you're doing the right things they move slowly are we getting healthier or not are we moving toward greater well being or aren't (laughs) we? How do we know? I know. And then in addition, it's very hard to make a causal link between individual policies and and these indicators, right? So in the life expectancy case. All right, well, how do we, um, how do we, let's say we put in a whole bunch of different policies and life expectancy has increased. Which one of those policies was it? Or was it actually that, you know, we did have a pandemic or we didn't have a pandemic or, you know, that people were closer to work, so they were walking more or further away from work, so they weren't going in. So, you know, it's just very, very hard for these kinds of indicators and dashboards to give us the deep and granular data that we need to assess policy proposals or how well policies have succeeded. Um, And, you know, and to a certain extent to work out policy priorities, because they're only giving you, they don't purport to do anything more than give you a snapshot of how things are doing and a snapshot, you know, you're only aiming the camera in one direction. It's going to miss a lot. So I think that they're actually really valuable in terms of public communication tools and, you know, the way in which the media talks about this stuff, the way in which the public thinks about this stuff is really important for the way in which, you know, politicians engage, the way in which they develop manifestos, um, the you know, what they sell, what they draw on, and, you know, keeping focused on things that are really important, for example. But that kind of measurement and dashboard, we shouldn't imagine, as I did when I was first doing the research, (laughs) they were going to they were going to be the answer that they were actually going to be a good way of right. changing practice okay. within government.
0: Yeah, so measuring is not enough especially because it's so hard to actually get measurements that we can directly use and guide us. I know I've asked you these big meaty questions and um, probably haven't even given you the proper space to sort of unpack, you know, that last one there, but I'm curious, I really want to make sure we don't run out of time to talk about Wales because I know that they have been such a shining light of what is possible and that you have spent a lot of time, uh, most recently with the outgoing commissioner from Wales for future generations, which is in and of itself, just a phenomenally cool job title. Uh, But, you know, that you spent a lot of time with her when she was out recently in Australia visiting and gave the fabulous John Manadou oration for the Centre for Policy Development, which we'll link to in the show notes. Everyone can watch it. But Wales really has shown a model of this that I think is so much more transformative and ambitious than it seems like you know, it would be possible. And particularly when you talk at that very start about being purpose-driven and you think, well, who gets to decide that? Who gets to decide our goals? Who gets to decide our vision? How does that happen? Do we just pick things that we assume everybody kind of agrees with or do we actually go out and talk to people? So can you talk us through just a little bit of what Wales has done and and how it's kind of been so effective?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I was nodding furiously as you're saying all of this and you know, sometimes I find it almost difficult because when you say, what are you excited about? And it's really, you know, we've seen a couple of good things in different places, but the, the practice in Wales from kind of beginning to end is so exciting that it's hard not to just get stuck on talking yeah. about Now well, let's, let's just praise Wales. That's fine. <laughs> let's, let's do it. In Wales, every single public body, from government ministers to departments but down to other public bodies that fall under the jurisdiction of Wales, so sports organisations, national parks, hospitals, uh, must work towards the seven Welsh wellbeing goals in everything that they do. So they must work towards them, as in it's, it's required of them, it's not just a nice thing to do. They must work towards all of them so if you think now about you know okay we've got our health department who you know can't just now think about health outcomes but they're going to think about sustainability health uh, outcomes for example we know that um uh the health sector is a very very high emitter of carbon you know, internationally. Uh, they've also got to think about, you know, community connectedness, for example, or social cohesion or equality, you know, how is equality represented in the way in which they're treating people, but also, you know, the people who they're employing. So got to work work towards all of them. And in everything that you do, which is quite amazing. So this just, this isn't just about policy decision making. And obviously, if you're including, you know, national parks and sports bodies and things, they don't, make policies, right, but also about procurement and that's had a huge follow-on effect. So obviously if the government is thinking about meeting all seven of its well-being goals in every, you know, procurement, um, uh, what's it called, expression of interest that it um, puts out there, then all of the, you know, huge power that you have in terms of getting private businesses to act in value-driven ways uh, really comes to force because the government is a huge procurer of goods and services, right? So we saw the the treasurer in a recent piece, Australian treasurer Jim Chalmers in a recent piece that he wrote in the Monthly Magazine talking about um, values-based capitalism and, you know, one way of government and business working together towards shared values is to say, okay, well, government is going to work towards businesses or work with businesses in ways that are specifically underpinned by the values that we want to pursue. So that's kind of the basis of the, the legislation. Um, and then there are a couple of other cool things. So one thing that's really, really important is how do you make sure that the values that you have, that these seven well-being goals are going to stand the test of time in terms of you know potential political change, which is actually less likely in Wales? So in Wales, the Labour government has never been out of power since um, First Parliament in 1999 or, you know, they've shed uh, power, but... Um, but you know, very, very important for places like Australia. I'm sure Albanese and Chalmers would happily take that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, how do you make sure that they stand the test of time? Uh, how do you make sure that you've also got uh public buy in? So, sometimes you can be giving the public great things immediately, sometimes you are going to ask the public to wait or to do things that. Might feel hard in the short term, but have great outcomes in the long term. So, for example, um, the Welsh Future Generations Commissioner, um, as part of her role, um, objected to a large stretch of road um, being built um, on basis of sustainability grounds, but also on the basis of the fact that um, the huge amount of money that was going to be spent on this. So, I think it was two thirds of their transport budget. could be much better spent improving all of the other well-being outcomes by, you know, focusing on public transport, on active transport um, and also, you know, the people, uh, equality outcomes because the people who are most likely to be uh, underserved by active and public transport uh, are also least likely to own a car are also most likely to be in the lowest socioeconomic band right? Um, but giving up a road, or actually now there's a moratorium on new roads being built in Wales, right? That's something where you have to have a lot of trust in the government uh and in the process. And you've got to, they have to have the capacity to clearly and compellingly explain to you why it is that they're doing something. And you have to be convinced and believe that, or else it's going to be very politically hard to get, get those kinds of things through that are really very important necessary things mm.
0: and you can imagine an opposition going look at this traffic this is really bad. Yeah. And the people who are struggling with that but well hang on our infrastructure isn't currently fit for purpose we do need better solutions we do need more investment you're telling me no new road but we're gonna switch to better public transport and how long will that take i just for anybody who doesn't know you know the the ins and outs of Wales and its seven wellbeing goals. I just thought I'd very quickly read them. So, it's a prosperous Wales, a resilient Wales, a healthier Wales, more equal, a Wales of cohesive communities, a vibrant culture, and thriving Welsh language, and a globally responsible Wales. Mm. How did they get to that vision? Like, who decided that?
1: Yeah, and this is part of you know the longevity picture. Yeah. It's also part of it's part of the legitimacy picture. So uh, Wales did a really big uh what they called a national conversation around the question what is the wales that we want to leave behind for our grandchildren and future generations and the government um you know supported this so kind of signed up to act on the uh, the data the results from this national conversation to a certain extent um but it was largely run by an independent organisation that joined up with hundreds of different organizations around Wales so young farmers organization and the you know women's organization schools um so children were directly involved and using all of these different mixed method responses um so you know getting kids to submit postcards or pictures of uh the future Wales that they want having kitchen table discussions, having public forums, you know, having online surveys, all, all of the different kinds of things uh, championed by um, certain kind of heroes with public profiles, but also community heroes. Uh, I think it was a bit, a bit over 10,000 people participated in this, uh, the Wales we want, national conversation. And out of this, uh, so looking at the findings from this and also looking at the sustainable development goals they developed these seven Welsh well-being goals. Um, and I guess that's you know, that's the first part of what is very, very exciting about the Welsh model. So the Welsh model works really well uh in terms of, I mean, it took you know many years for there to be enough cultural change that it did work in the way that it does, but it works really well um in terms of how it has influenced policy decision making. So Fewer decisions that might be good in the long term, but actually bad in the you know, so good in the short term, but actually bad in the long term, uh, seem to be being made. And lots of ways in which you know innovation, so that you can join up all of these good, good different components that you could uh, draw upon, uh, are kind of really happening. So you know they made it was a manifesto commitment to build it was. 3,000, 30,000, something like that, 20,000. Oh, no, a, a large number of new social homes um, in Wales. And after this was made, um, the Future Generations Commissioner, Sophie Howe, said, okay, so now we have to think about how to do that in a way which ticks all of the wellbeing boxes. So, you know, we think about sustainability. Um, we've got to make sure that these are low-carbon homes, that are well-insulated, that we're using green energy, Thinking about, you know, uh, making sure that they're fit for the future so we don't have to come in and retrofit them, which means we know that we've got an aging population, they should be fit for an aging population. Thinking about the workforce that's going to build these homes. You know, we should be, we want a prosperous Wales, we want a Wales where people are able to engage in meaningful work and, you know, well-paid work. So building these homes is going to be that kind of meaningful, well-paid work. Have we actually got are we training people already because we know that this work is coming? And also who should we be training? So taking an equality lens, are are there ways in which we can target people who are on the outskirts of the employment system or people who are kind of marginalized within those particular employment areas? So those kind of very clever, you know, pragmatic lenses on decision-making happens very regularly. But how you get the mandate to do that has to come from that widespread national engagement. And people loved participating in that. I mean, people can sometimes get a bit of consultation fatigue, but typically in consultation, you're told we are going, sometimes you're told we are going to do this thing. You know, you can complain about it if you like, but we've done our job. But often it's, do you want this thing? Yes or no, right? People might not have particular views on it or they might feel very strongly one way or another and not feel like they're going to be listened to whereas the national conversation it educated people and it kind of unified people and it asked them something which everybody has a view on and everybody is excited about you know what what do you want to leave behind what's what's the kind of future that you want i mean that's that's an incredibly optimistic um framing and it's one that uh i think can enable governments to really um be ambitious in what it is that they're trying to achieve. So, yeah, in terms of the Welsh model, like step one would be to have a national conversation and to make sure that it's focused on these goals, this purpose that can then be embedded into government decision-making. And we know that it works, right? So it's worked in Wales and sometimes people say, okay, well, Wales is 3 million people, you know, Australia's a lot bigger. But that's not the kind of thing that doesn't scale. Like, you know. <laughs> Asking people, like there might be that, you know, if we say, okay, everybody has to have a potato or something. Well, we've got so many more people. We just there be so many potatoes, right? Asking everybody what, you know, what's the Australia you want to live in? What's the Australia you'd be proud to be part of? You know, what's your vision for a future Australia? That's that's something that you can scale. And it's something where uh, it's a very unifying way um, of approaching that. So I feel very... Excited, you know Sophie's visit. So I should say her her role, and that's the other uh, great thing about um, the legislation is it created this office, the Welsh Reach Generations Commissioner. So it's an independent um, office where her role is to essentially support, but also make sure that all of these public bodies are working towards well-being goals in good faith in everything that they're doing. Um, her office has uh number of people and so i think it's 30 people or something like that work there so they've got um research capacities um they've got uh they produce like a amazing range of case studies on their website so you might think i'm not sure how to go about doing this you can go and look at the the case studies um if a say department or public body doesn't look like they're working towards their goals then that office can do an audit and make recommendations, and they have to comply or justify. So, they the office of the Future Generations Commissioner can't force anyone to do anything, but putting the effort into justifying why you're not doing something is a very good motivation to, <laughs> to change your practice, right? But in addition, it's it's really supporting them. So the recommendations are supposed to be helpful, clear steps that you can take to actually achieve these um, goals. And then in addition to some wellbeing goals and, you know, all of this, uh, because the other thing that makes this work really well, if you want to embed it in culture is clarity. So you think about, you know, the um, early intervention investment fund that I mentioned before in the Victorian treasury, it could have died within the first couple of years if everybody thought, well, I just don't know how to fill out the form. I don't, I, don't know what models I'd use to predict those future savings, so I'm just not going to participate. It'd be nice to get the extra money, but it's not worth all the yeah. extra hassle. Too hard. Yeah, so you've got to you've got to really support people. People want to do the right thing, but you don't know what the right thing to do yeah. is if um if it's not clear. Yeah, particularly when you're but, trying to do
0: it differently and experiment and do it, yeah, in a way it hasn't been done before. By definition, that is going to be scary and hard.
1: Exactly. But so the amazing thing is that um, the legislation also sets out these five ways of working. So the kind of ways in which you should be working towards these wellbeing goals and everything that you do. And I'm going to read them out and they're going to sound pretty familiar. Um, So long-term, you've got to be thinking of balancing short-term needs with a need to safeguard the ability to meet long-term needs. Prevention. So deploying resources to prevent problems from occurring or getting worse rather than just parking your um, ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Um, integration, so considering how your wellbeing objectives are going to impact upon one another, but also how they're going to impact on the wellbeing objectives of other public bodies. So am I, am I supporting other public bodies and trying to meet these wellbeing goals or is what I'm going to do Actually, taking away their ability to work towards these goals, collaboration. So, uh, collaborating with any other people who could assist uh, the body in meeting its well-being objectives, and involvement. So, involving people who have an interest in achieving these goals, and particularly those who are going to be most affected by those decisions. So, those are. I mean, I've, maybe I forgot to include involvement, but those are essentially the characteristics of a well-being approach that. I highlighted at the beginning of our discussion. Yeah, uncanny. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And it was funny because we came up with those um, through looking at all of these different wellbeing approaches globally. And it was only in like revising the report where I realised that they were so similar to these Welsh ways of working. Because they're, they're common sense in a sense. And so there is this guidance in how to achieve this goal that seems seems fluffy, but it's actually not. It seems uh, you know, economically responsible, but actually it's not. It's it can be way more uh, responsible. Uh it seems kind of overwhelmingly ambitious, but actually it's achievable. I think that's the one uh, that I get stuck on. It's just like, wow, hmm. where do you
0: start? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, this is I could talk about the West model. All day long, but I know, and sadly, in we're running out of time. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, look, what what I'll say is, during Sophie's visit to Australia, um, I went from being a somebody who would love to have seen a national conversation, but just didn't really feel like, you know, maybe we could integrate a couple of these different tools into government decision making, right? You know, like like the early intervention investment framework, which I think is fantastic, or uh, you know, maybe like well-being impact assessments or you know, something like that, but that was the most that we could hope for. And Sophie gave 40 or more than 40 different public events, meetings, um, you know, had connections with all different people from civil society to MPs to members of government to, you know, just people from you know, such a different range of bodies. And the the enthusiasm the excitement the optimism that i saw from pretty much every single one of these people made me think actually i think this is something that we could do and i think we have you know the organizations that we've talked to the people who we've talked to you know they are on the edges of their seats ready to jump in and help support run this in in the way that you know those ngos and other bodies help support yeah. And my own organization,
0: as you know, did a very like we have done a version of this, right, of going out and talking to people from very different backgrounds and quality, you know, places and walks of life and saying, what is the Australia that you want? What is the country that you dream of? And people cry like it is such a beautiful thing to be asked and to be asked in a way that you're not just thinking about, you know, hey, politician X, if you want my vote, what are you going to do for me? But like, what do we want to create for, you know, our future and for our legacy and for the kind of country and society that we want to live in? So I'm 1000% there. I think that it could absolutely be a really positive Um, practical but also ambitious like it's this interesting paradox of like it's so practical and it's so common sense on the one hand and it seems so radically ambitious on the other that we're all a bit skeptical as to how it can really work but it can like it's a pretty cool model
1: yeah I mean I think so so my my background is as a philosopher as I said and like the ethicist in me loves the idea of making a world a better place, but you know, the person who's just done problem solving and logic says it's just really good sense. Like (laughs) this it's part of what I love so much about this is identifying ways in which it's, it's a no brainer. It's just absolute no brainer. And like what an incredible gift to politicians to know what it is that people actually want rather than making assumptions and people getting cross or, saying, you know, look, isn't this really important, but we can't sell it to the public. Maybe you can sell it to the public when the public knows that's actually what everybody wants and cares about.
0: And isn't it better than just having the same arguments every year over and over again about debt and deficit and GDP and is the economy growing or shrinking? And oh my God, if it shrinks, the sky is going to fall in and what are we all going to do and how are we going to pay for all the things that we need? And yeah, it's so much more inspiring so what do you reckon how optimistic are you about australia do you think we could actually get something like this happening
1: yeah look i mean i think um i think the challenge is to get the supportive government to agree to you know look at and act on the findings of a national conversation that's and i don't think i i don't know how big a challenge that is or actually maybe that's something that Uh, would be easy to achieve. Like, let's see. That's actually something that we're going to be thinking about and talking with people um, about, I think, in terms of the logistics of how you get it off the ground. Well, on the one hand, we've got, you know, these incredible international models and experiences. Um, I'm going to be in Wales in two weeks and talking to the group that actually ran the National Conversation in Wales. Um, But, you know, on the other hand, we've got, incredible organizations like Australia Remade, like the Australian Council of Social Services, Victorian Council of Social Services, who've done already essentially a version of this national conversation. And we've got these incredible skills and resources, a desire to work together. Like I I honestly think, you know, there's going to be a moment where we just we I don't want to say pull the trigger that's a horrible uh <laughs> kind of mental image right but a good like a wellbeing metaphor that, the horn, <laughs> you know, whatever it is a yeah. horn that says you know this is the time and i really think you know and i think we need to be mindful of um giving the uh voice referendum its space and um but you know after that yeah i I mean, look, I, I am a bit of an optimist, now you're but right. I'm not a deluded optimist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think it's really achievable and I, you know, and this is, I've come to this, you know, point of view very recently because of the evidence in front of my own eyes, which is, this is, you know, it's a complicated model in some respects, but it's one that makes sense to everybody it is actually really clear you can see these fantastic results and we know that you know the the public service at the government they they want to do things better they want to have a bit more purpose and vision there's a real anxiety because these are the are and have to be apolitical bodies right so it's not just that we don't want them saying let's come up with you know these well-being goals they don't want to come up with, you know, well-being goals or purpose to a certain extent, um, and there is going to be some, you know, potential resistance if they try and do it all on their own because they have the remit to be a political uh, kind of an important remit, um, but it's not political to ask people what matters to them and then to say, okay, well, we work for the people, and we work, you know, for. I, you know, or our purpose is to improve the well-being of these people. And now we know what this means because they've told us. So it should be really, really empowering. And I just don't know how you couldn't get excited.
0: Oh, look, like you know, you've got me. So I'm, I'm there. I'm with you. I think it's a fabulous idea. And I think it holds a lot of promise and potential. And as you say, there are some really interesting conditions within the public service and way beyond that show that maybe the time It's really right for this. Um, Chris, I'm so sorry I have to say goodbye now. I could just keep talking to you for like another three hours, but it has been such a delight and I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise. You know, you're an expert in this at a global level and, you know, particularly have obviously done a really good deep dive into what they've achieved over in Wales and how inspiring that can really be for all of us. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a lot of fun to talk about this stuff. We'll have to do it again soon. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot.
0: Oh, wouldn't that be amazing to get something like that happening in Australia? a national conversation that was truly led by the community, for the community. People talking to each other in their sporting clubs, in their neighborhoods, in their schools. Imagine school children getting to have conversations about the Australia they want and imagine all of that genuinely feeding back into a process that government listened to and used to develop a set of long-term, future-focused, holistic, goals for us as a society i just think it's a really cool idea and if you want to learn more about kind of any of this stuff or if you're already into the kind of well-being space and you want to go along to something pretty exciting there's actually a global forum coming up in iceland i really want to go Um, it's in june but you can attend online if you can't get there in person so i'll link to that in your show notes I'll link to an article that we've written in Australia Remade about Sophie Howe's visit and how incredible we found it, as well as the Welsh Government website, the Centre for Policy Development's work on this. Um, There's a lot of inspiration here. Thank you so much for listening. We are actually going to have Sophie Howe herself on the podcast uh, in a couple of months, so look out for that one. I'm so looking forward to it when she's back in Australia. And our next guest is none other than the incredible well-being economist and one of the global leaders in this space of well-being economics, Dr. Catherine Trebek. She'll be on the show next time. Thanks for listening.